Over the last several years, Congress has passed several pieces of legislation meant to speed up the Defense Department's acquisition system. Now, DOD officials have an idea of their own. They're asking for new authorities that would let the military services get started on critical acquisition projects without lawmakers' prior approval. As Federal News Network's Jared Serbu reports, defense officials say the current approval process just takes too long and risks putting DOD at a technological disadvantage. The reforms Congress has passed since the middle of the last decade have been focused on moving technologies through DOD's acquisition bureaucracy more quickly. But none of them have dealt with the delays that come from the annual congressional budgeting and appropriations process. Defense officials say this one would. The department's proposal wouldn't apply to everything. The new authority could only be used for technologies that are needed quickly to respond to emerging threats. Frank Kendall, the Secretary of the Air Force, has been pressing the idea for years. Right now, he says that sort of rapid response is next to impossible. Our proposal would expand rapid acquisition authority so that military departments can more quickly respond to emerging threats and take advantage of evolving technology. Within reasonable constraints, this legislative proposal would allow progress on compelling national security needs that would otherwise be delayed until the next submission and approval of the president's budget. Kendall says he believes the new authority would shave about two years off the time it takes for the military to begin new start programs. Under the current system, he says promising new technologies are left essentially in limbo while individual proposals make their way through the DOD and congressional budgeting processes. I'm waiting right now. We spent the first year I was in office defining what we needed to do to stay ahead of the Beijing challenge, ahead of China. And I had to wait a year to get that into the budget, get the budget submitted. Now I'm waiting another roughly a year for, under normal circumstances, that budget to be passed. If there's a year continuing resolution, I'll wait yet another year. And that is all time that we're giving away to someone who's racing to be ahead of us technologically in field of capability. We cannot afford that time. If Congress agrees to the proposal as part of next year's defense authorization bill, DOD would be able to spend up to $300 million on a new program without getting congressional approval. Lawmakers would only be notified about a new start for one of the programs after a decision has been made. But DOD would have to meet a relatively high bar to use the authority. The Secretary of Defense would need to certify that the technology involved is urgent and simply can't wait for the next budget cycle. The department would also have to specifically identify a funding source for the new program from within its existing budget. And the authority could only be used for the earliest stages of a new program, not beyond the point of a system's preliminary design review. We will be able to do the low-cost initial stages of a program do the system engineering, do the preliminary design work, do maybe a little risk reduction, maintain competition, make no long-term commitments, only go up to the point of preliminary design review, one of the earliest milestones. All that is relatively inexpensive, but it takes time. And then Congress would have full authority to uh, decide whether we could proceed beyond that point or not. We would probably use reprogrammings for this, and Congress would have authority over that. So there wouldn't be any real loss of the, uh, uh, the, the authorities that the Congress has over what we do, but we would gain a year and a half at least of, of, of time lead time to getting things filled in. The proposal would build on authorities Congress already added as part of this year's defense authorization bill. That provision told DOD to create new procedures to rapidly buy the capabilities it needs to deal with urgent operational needs or vital national security interests. But DOD says the existing authority only lets it buy commercial items or technologies that are already in development, not new technologies that haven't been specifically budgeted. 
Kendall says the department, and the Air Force in particular, needs to get on with the business of divesting old systems and investing in new ones as quickly as possible, largely because of the perceived threat from China. China is aggressively trying to field the capability to defeat our ability to project power. And they've been working on it for at least 20 years. Uh, their long-range weapon systems targeting our airfields, our carriers, our satellites, etc., uh, are a threat that we really have to cope with. But they're also modernizing their air-to-air capability. Uh, I can't go into great details here, but they have analyzed carefully how we fight and what we fight with, and they've been thoughtful about what they need to invest in to try to circumvent that or defeat it. And that's the reason that I'm so obsessed with getting on with the next generation capabilities. Holding on to things that are becoming obsolete over time just doesn't make any sense. We've got to get to the next generation. We're moving towards modernization that will be effective against that threat, but that's a dynamic threat. It's constantly changing. It will respond to, to what we do. So we need to think very carefully about the future, what our future posture might look like, and create some options at this point. We also need to look at how we're structured. I've asked my scientific advisory board to take a look at this. The posture the Air Force has evolved into over time is one that was essentially derived from the kinds of operations it was conducting, which were largely counterinsurgency with a lot of deployments overseas for people and a certain kind of tactical combat operations. That's not what our future looks like. But we've also got to look at how we're structured to do acquisition. We're not transitioning science and technology as quickly into products as we should be or as efficiently as we should be. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law 
in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask 
Is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.